Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 14 of the Wachama Talks, Wachama Podcast. Our guest today is Chinta Kella from India and from Rome. He became a global citizen in the last couple of years. He is a guest researcher in Wageningen yeah. for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Around four months? Or uh, so? Total six months. Six I months. finish next month. Ah, cool. At the end of this month. Yeah. But he, he studies in Rome. Yeah. He, at his, he's doing his PhD on business and management with focus on non-capitalist uh, structure. And his main focus is the novel forms of organizations. Yeah. And uh, welcome on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Zolt, for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure and uh, joining the Vachama Talks. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I, I've seen that you, you are from uh, Gujarat, yeah. India? Yeah, the uh, state uh, of Gujarat. Gujarat, Gujarat. Yeah. So I will, I'm, I, I have, I've never been in India, but mm-hmm. uh, we always get the impression that, oh, it's very crowded, a lot of people. But I just uh, did some Googling, like, quickly. Yeah. And like comparing the size and the population, it's, mm-hmm. it's like 60 million people, the yeah. population. It's like almost the same density like Germany, for example, because it's 200,000 uh, 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 yeah. square kilometers. True. Germany is more than 300, but mm-hmm. Germany has a population of uh, 80 million people. Yeah. Uh, what is yeah. the feeling? Or is it a, a less dense uh, 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 area of... Uh, so. I mean, the, the thing we have is, uh, but I guess the numbers might be a bit mistaken because yeah. the Indian numbers are not updated regularly. Yeah, okay. So it might be an older yeah. population. Uh, so our cities are crazy big and yeah. crazy dense. Uh, Ahmedabad is, I think, the third densest city in India itself, where I come oh. from. And uh, But once you go in the rural areas of the villages, you don't feel it so dense. But uh, it was only after I moved to Europe that I realized the the overpopulation in India or the too many people because until then that was mm. what was normal for me. Mm. It is only when I moved to Europe I could see yeah. empty spaces, I could yeah. see empty streets and there would be just one or two people on the street yeah. and uh, that, that was something very new to me. Yeah, but are there also these many apartment blocks in India uh, like yeah dead, yeah the urbanization is yeah. going uh, way out of control in a way a bit uh, yeah. there's a lot of uh, what we call as the internal migration that is happening mm. is uh, people from villages are moving towards the cities the urban migration yeah. and the cities are not that well planned so plus the economy is booming a lot is, is and it's since last around 18 years now so there's a lot of investment that goes into the city, but the municipality does not keep up the pace with that. Mm. So there's the, a very weird kind of construction goes in and uh, there are suburbs that already emerge without having basic municipal facilities. Mm. And uh, yeah, so, so it's, it's just concrete jungle that is getting there. Your current study is clear how it, how it relates to the situation. Uh, but what did what did you study before? What was your motivation to get into this uh, field? This research, uh, I or have the previous uh, studies. Yeah. Okay, uh, it's it's a very different path that I have. Yeah. So, like most of Indians, we are notorious for 
being a part of uh, IT, ICT mm. uh, industry. So I also did my graduate, my, my bachelor degree in engineering, in computer engineering, but I could not relate with it at all. I had mm. seen the number of people graduating every year and that was not how I saw myself working. Mm. So I worked for a year and then I did my MBA uh, mm. with a specialization in human resources. Wow. Uh, and the, one of the conventional form is that usually the girls or the females would do a specialization in HR because it's more like an office job for them. Mm. So we were in total 14 students who chose specialization in HR and of the 14 only three of us were the guys, rest all were girls. Mm. Uh, but I had done a small calculation was that my state is also a very industrial state and factories usually need male members into their HR to handle with the workers or that. Yeah. So I was using that as my car to get a job eventually and that worked out very well. That worked out very good. Uh, so I worked in the industry for around four years with a with a uh, engineering procurement construction company that do uh, turnaround projects. Uh, and then somewhere the corporate, I was missing something in the what, corporate. What, what is what is turnaround projects? Uh, turnaround projects are turnkey projects, not turnaround, yeah, turnkey yeah, projects. Yeah. So they get a, 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 a tender for yeah. building something. Yeah. They have to erect it, yeah. commission it, make it working, yeah. and then they give it back yeah. to the client. Yeah. Uh, so for the turnkey projects and, uh, and it was a typical corporate life, uh, very jet setting. I was shuttling between two Ahmedabad and Mumbai mm. nearly on an everyday basis for interviews. We had a very nice international project for Kuwait. Uh, so I was really enjoying the work, but I could not see myself continuing more because I could not see any impact that I was making. Mm. I was just doing the tasks. The part of the machine. The part of the machine, yeah. exactly. And, uh, and uh, I mean, the machine was pretty good, yeah. but it was not fulfilling. It was fulfilling yeah. to some extent, but once yeah. you do it for some months, yeah. you want new challenges. And usually in a corporate, in a big corporate, you don't get new challenges because everything is structured. Everything mm. is broken down into small tasks. Yeah. and it's allocated to you so if things change the whole system moves and that happens very rarely that there is a whole systematic change in the organization so so it was a very clear call for me i decided to leave corporate and i was very much getting interested into the consulting work because yeah. that was a, also a period of startups coming in hmm. and small and medium enterprises already existed in my state a lot but the internationalization started taking place. There was a lot of uh, uh, MOUs done with international companies. So I again calculated a bit of it that these small and medium enterprises will need to set up a certain level of people processes, HR systems to match the international level. So they and, and they don't know they these are the entrepreneur guys who don't know about such policies, such people systems. So they would need a consultant at that point and an effective consultant, not uh, like KPMG or something yeah. that they can't afford. Yeah. Uh, so I used that and that also again played off yeah. very well. Uh, in a period of three months, I had four clients. Plus I had also started to teach in business school at that time because I was not sure if consulting was completely my thing or teaching was my thing. I was inclined, I was interested to both of these areas. Mm -hmm. So I was like, let's uh, go ahead with both of them. And uh, uh, both of them were working fine. But at some point I realized that teaching is what I want to do full time. 
and that's how I applied for a PhD program in the Lewis University in Rome and uh, yeah so in 2014 I moved to Rome and uh, since last four years it's my research journey going on okay yeah sounds good yeah can you tell us more about this uh, university this uh, Lewis University, university. Uh, Lewis uh, the, the full name is uh, Luis Guido Carli University yeah. based in Rome. It's a private university, mm. uh, but the business school is, uh, I, I assume it's number two in, in Italy. Uh, it's a very fast rising university. It has a good uh, support from the Confindustria, yeah. the, the Chamber of Commerce. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a very resourceful university. So if you need yeah. any resources, you easily get access to that. And that builds up a very nice environment in terms of if if basically a research job is very self-driven job. Yeah. It's a very independent self-driven job. And if you have to struggle and fight for resources, you really can't focus on the research part itself. Yeah. So that way it was very good at Lewis. Uh, I was a part of the ethics, responsibility and sustainability team. So there are various chairs and I was part of the ERS hub, yeah. as we call it. And therein we study basically the, as you mentioned, the non-capitalist model, but the focus is either on ethics part or responsibility or sustainability part of it. Yeah. Uh, and then there is an, another team which looks into the organization design and organization theory. So I have uh, two supervisors from one from each area and I was trying to bridge in that how these uh, organizations which have a bit of a non-capitalist focus yeah. are also creating a new forms of organization or organizing. So how they arrange themselves differently, how they do certain things differently, creating a different outcome than what the capitalist organizations have been okay. doing. And also, I, I, I kind of feel that uh, what you, from what you are saying, that uh, it's also not uh, full on against uh, capitalism, but more like uh, trying to find the layers yeah. to have because also within the, the the capitalism you have sometimes we we call it the wide capitalism which is mm -hmm. like uh, destroying almost everything yeah. just for a purpose but uh, for example if you if we think about en entrepreneurship or social mm -hmm. entrepreneurship the basic models are still there which are from the from the capitalist yeah. part theories and yeah and yeah. it serves uh, serves the society mm -hmm. absolutely so, yeah. absolutely true so yeah exactly so we look our i specifically look into social enterprises my supervisor uh, tomislav rimak uh, he also studies that uh, so yeah so social enterprises are the kind of organizations that do have a bit of a economic focus to sustain themselves because yeah. somewhere they realize that NGOs depend too much on the grants and the grant is not a sustainable way of surviving as an organization because you end up having beneficiaries yeah. and if your grant stops the whole system collapses. So yeah. social enterprises is a bit of self-dependent, uh, able to generate some economic benefit but that is not their focus. Their focus is to have some social impact, to have to work for a social cause. And uh, in doing so, they ended up creating different organizational forms. So some are uh, like the green projects. So they, they start as a social enterprise itself. But there are also very many capitalist organizations who are moving towards this, yeah. who are realizing that they need to have a social focus. So they are changing their existing business models, their organizational models to 
become more sustainable to become more socially sustainable yeah. uh, so yeah it's it's not uh, a completely against the capitalist movement it's just is there an alternate form so we yeah. also uh, say it like what are the alternative forms we don't say what are the completely opposite or if capitalist was a wrong form but are there other alternatives that we can pursue yeah there are many levels of there are that. many layers to that we also so. had on the show many people from the finance uh-huh. and they say also that money is an enabler it's a tool True. Uh, and True. that's the mindset what we have to have to uh, kind of uh, get back to mm-hmm. or see okay why do we need that money or why does an organization need this money yeah. because of uh, the shareholders they want more uh, money to uh, accumulate or what is the the purpose behind so and if, if that is clear then we can just use money as a inter a tool of exchange and uh, energy yeah. exchange and uh, yeah, there's there's a interesting theory the stakeholder theory mentions that because earlier the the whole focus was that shareholders are the primary stakeholders and the purpose of business is only to do business Yeah. uh but later on the whole concept changed that the paradigm had to be shifted that it's not just the shareholders who are the stakeholders but it is also the community yeah. that you live in the the social community the geographic community that you are a part of and and you are somewhere responsible for that you are accountable for your consequences on them yeah. and and that shifted the focus so the moment your paradigm shifts in terms of whom you look as your stakeholders then accordingly you start to design your business processes your yeah. business models to accommodate them and uh, that that is uh, the the two of the projects that i'm working on primarily focus on these two things cool uh, on episode 7 we mm. had a, a a guy khais he was yeah. also khais uh, okay. uh, but he was a banker in england and uh-huh. he has an initiative now it's a, it's a new company he they they wanted to start a, a social bank or a more more uh, yeah they wanted to kind of uh, clear out the the wheat from the banking system but yeah. the, the r- basic rules of uh, establishing a, the bank are so rigid uh, that yeah. they make you behave as all of the other banks so he created this financial technology that uh, an entrepreneur even if it's just a small entrepreneur or a big mm-hmm. enterprise can uh, digitally divide uh, its shares mm-hmm. Uh, very similar to the stocks on yeah. the stock but it's just d- just digital and in that sense the stakeholders like also the suppliers but the consumers can become shareholders of the company yeah so it creates a whole ecosystem which is based on trust what we yeah. the, true it comes up almost in every every speak what we have yeah uh and uh, yeah it's just very interesting to see that how it pops up uh, almost everywhere it's just uh... true because uh, earlier the the capitalist model is purely based on the agency theory and the contract yeah. system that if you have a contract the contract will be responsible and and also a vice versa that you need to have a contract for a proper execution yeah. without realizing that uh, though human beings are selfish beings they are also they have a altruism into them inbuilt yeah. they have a concept of trust we human beings have always as a society flourished based on trust based yeah. on forming unions which are again based on trust with each other 
and uh, and that is how we have grown into larger societies into into things so the contracts are something that are very new overall in a period of the whole human mankind uh, but we have flourished without them uh, for a longer period so this is coming back to it and and organizations are realizing that uh, people work in organizations not because they signed up a contract but there is something else that drives them so yeah. you cannot separate the human as a social being from human as an employer in your yeah. organization it's yeah. it's a mix of that and management as a theory is acknowledging it more and more psychology yeah. as a field of science has already acknowledged it they have worked on it yeah. a lot but somewhere the management theories were not informed by that studies and now the role of emotions the role of feelings and and trust is coming yeah. in that how trust can influence the governance how trust can even influence uh, new forms of organization that come up so do we need a ba- a, a very strong contract based uh, organization a hierarchical organization or can it be in some form of trust that it works up so that it remains a bit informal yeah. but because of that informality the organization becomes very agile as well it it can change shape very easily it can shift if anything in the external environments change it shifts very easily and that is where they are realizing that the core strength of the organization is the trust and not these formal contracts that have been put into place and talking about contracts uh, one of your main area of research is the street vendors which yeah. who are the who are a significant part of indian society especially in urban population yes uh, I've seen numbers around 90%, but I'm not sure what was uh, referring on okay. this 90% yeah. uh, uh, because you sent me also uh, a document about uh, women street mm-hmm. vendors, but yeah. in general there are a lot of uh, street vendors yeah, on, true, true. and they are representing a significant amount of uh, the society, which is kind of not contract based employed so yes. for normal economics they are invisible mm-hmm. and maybe it hurts someone or yeah that there are some concerns about it i wrote up some some uh, uh here no. i wrote up uh, some uh, yeah because i looked it up the, the street mm-hmm. vendors what is happening there Uh, what some concerns was about hygiene some was about bureaucracy there was also a lot about bribe yeah uh, then uh, the taxation insurance uh, healthcare all of these were kind of uh, mengd into mm-hmm. this uh, street vendor system <laughs> however it's seemingly from outside it, it looks uh, that it works yeah and but maybe you 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 can elaborate on that more and i don't know uh, also the hygiene is it just uh, like for outsider it's uh, an issue or uh, yeah sure okay so <laughs> uh, yeah as you mentioned uh, though i grew up in india i was born there and i grew up there and i have been around street vendors the whole life you uh, in india uh, street vendors don't necessarily mean only as the street food vendors that yeah. is the finished product yeah. but uh, a large section of them uh, sell fresh produce so vegetables yeah. and fruits so there are fresh fruit markets uh, and because their presence was relatively so strong because of various reasons that even the supermarkets could not enter the primary reasons are that uh, 
India still has a very patriarchal society. So women are not largely a part of a workforce. So they stay at home. They are responsible for cooking, for for buying groceries. So for women and and yeah. to and to raise children. So women have to go and buy these uh, fresh produce. Secondly, India is largely a vegetarian society as well. There are sections of meat eating, but the the amount of meat consumption is relatively very less compared to the Western societies. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, so there's a large need of the vegetables and fresh produce. And these women, either they don't know how to drive or even if they do, they would not prefer going to far distances uh, within the city because of traffic congestion, because of various other reasons. So street vendors are a, a very optimal solution looking at the situation of India. They are near in your neighborhood. You can easily walk up to them. Plus, uh, as we mentioned about the trust, over a period of time, you established a form of a relationship based on trust with them that they will give you a good produce at a good price. Bargaining exists in India, so there's no fixed price. Yeah. So, so, so all of these reasons work very fine with them. Apart from the fresh produce, yes, there are a lot of street vendors, especially in the evening hours who sell street food uh, or a lot of other plastic products or household yeah. products as well. So they cater to a small industries which do not produce high-end products but very cheap products yeah. and they form a very strong part of the supply chain because these small companies do not have their whole supply chain of uh, retailers to sell these produce. So they depend on these street vendors to ensure that these street vendors further cater to a section of society which cannot afford high quality products. So the products are low in quality but then they are also cheaper. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, now, uh, as you mentioned about the 90%, so the 90% of informal workers. Hmm. So informal workers are basically the workers who, are, who don't have a white collar job. So these are street vendors, these are garbage pickers, these are people who work a bit into the construction industry, heavy yeah. load movers. Yeah. So of the, of the employable workforce of India, so we are not talking of the total population of yeah, India, but yeah, the people yeah. who can be employed. Yeah. So that comes to around 470 million of 1.2 billion population. Wow. The rest are kids or old people. Yeah. So of this 470 million population, yes, 90% of them is yeah. into informal economy. That was I referring to. Yeah, because the white collar jobs don't exist so much. Yeah. Now there is a boom uh, with IT industry and various yeah. other industries, but still relatively India the concept of uh, entrepreneurship and self-employment is very high in India. It's yeah. very common, very high in India. Yeah. So these people eventually form a part of the self-employed individuals. Yeah. Now, a person who runs his own shop is also self-employed and a person who sells on the street is self-employed. The yeah. only difference between these two is the legal existence. Yeah. The shopkeeper has a legal existence because he registers with the municipality, with his shop, with his license number. A street vendor could not register because the system was not there. Hmm. So it was not uh, that they chose to be illegal or do it informally. It's just that the system was not there for them to do it formally. Hmm. Uh, that was number one. And uh, secondly, uh, there is a bit of a notion of street vending in the Western society that uh, one, the concept is not very common because the somehow the institutions take care of people 
of helping them find employment or they can have empl- unemployment benefits it mainly concentrates on on the markets or on the marketplace on the marketplaces yeah and and plus in west there is a bit of a notion that street vendors either sell smuggled products or stolen products a bit mm. in big cities if you see in rome if you see in some paris that is what you usually come across so the society at large does not like to interact with street vendors in the west while in india and in many of the southeast asian countries latin americas you interact a lot with them you depend a lot on street vendors for your everyday needs so so the level of interaction is high but the institutions were not built around them the institutions were not built on how to handle them that was number 1 number 2 was uh in the larger scheme of building cities the town planners and architects always thought of building rich magnificent buildings like they see in the pictures in the west without realizing that the indian middle class and lower middle class is bigger in number so there are a lot of poor people so somehow in their bigger scheme of things they never had a place for a poor person yeah. so they never incorporated areas or or specified designated zones for such people so they would build only legal areas legal terms in the town planning so anywhere a street vendor would conduct his business his or her business that would be an informal economy yeah i i, I watched a ted talk from a guy who is mm. into this and he he said that the same that uh, we the, in india they are planning the cities to uh, make it like singapore yeah, or exactly. uh, los angeles yeah exactly our our references are always like oh ahmedabad is like london we have a river flowing in and i'm like it is nowhere near london yeah. mumbai is going to be the next singapore and i'm like not in next 100 years yeah. because the institutions are just not there so what uh, i studied as a part of my whole project was i was looking into this organization called seva yeah. uh, which stands for self employed women's association uh, and how it was able to gather these people working in the informal economy and lead to institutional change because one of the concept that uh, the emerging countries usually or the developing countries whatever label you might want to use uh, face is uh, not always a lack of institutions but sometimes institutions exist but they are not enforced correctly yeah. so there is either an institutional void or an institutional incongruence yeah. uh, in in classic case of street vendor the incongruence was uh, there is the whole institution of the roads and the traffic management of yeah. how the road should be and what are the kind of laws about them and then there is also the basic human rights incorporated into our constitution so according to the constitution every person has a right to earn a living according to the roads and traffic police anybody obstructing the street or a footpath which hardly exist but still uh, can be fined and this was being used for the street vendors on one side they should be able to earn but on other side this law was being used so it was not that street vending was illegal because nowhere in the constitution it says that street vending is illegal it is just that if you obstruct a street that is illegal if yeah. you are having some permanent structure on the street or if you are engaging into some kind of commerce on the street yeah. making money on the street that was illegal and these were the excuses the police would use yeah. to harass street vendors to yeah. find them to to take away their stuff yeah. uh And, yeah. and in indeed uh, it's a very uh, we we go back again for the balance because these uh, 
rules are good to have, but again, uh, sometimes it could depend on an individual, ju uh, individual judgment of a police officer, what was, uh, if it's uh, legal or not legal. And uh, also what I've seen that, uh, for example, in uh, Western countries, this bureaucracy and over-regulation, it goes sometimes even too far. For example, in the US there are states, uh, or there are, I've seen documentaries, mm -hmm. that uh, when a farmer was selling raw milk, then the, you know, the SWAT team uh, went in, and like, it's like yeah. almost the other stuff. So I think somewhere is between the, the truth, what uh, we have to find. Yeah. And, uh, what is good thing is that uh, we cannot say that the Western model is the perfect because we see all, already many uh, pitfalls of it. Mm -hmm. So in the process of developing these uh, new institutions, it would be nice to also consider the, the good stuff from the Western part. Uh, yeah. I, I can quote an example on this. The very beautiful thing that happened in this whole process of the street vending is in 2014, the government of India passed uh, the Street Vendors Act, yeah. uh, which uh, which legalizes uh, the street vending in a way, and it brings it into a part of formal economy. Hmm. But before that, all the studies that were done were constantly suggesting that the way to formalize this, the way to bring informal economy into formal economy is... Uh, creating low barriers for them to join yeah. and then taxing them again. Mm. So that's that's all. So the idea of formal economy is if you pay tax, you are formal. Yeah. Uh, without realizing that these street vendors basically on a day, they make around 2 to 10 euros per day maximum. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, if they start paying tax on this, apart from the other costs that they have, uh, it does not make sense for them at all economically. It was not economically viable and they could not survive then. Uh, thankfully, these arguments were put into the whole drafting of the Street Vendors Act mm. and the government of India made a very beautiful statement saying that exactly the same thing, that uh, these people are engaging into street vending not to become rich or to evade taxes, they are engaging into just to survive. And if we start taxing them, they will not be able to survive. So they have uh, up to a certain amount of income if a street vendor makes and if they are registered. Uh, they are exempted from tax and that i believe because uh, street vending has been legalized in many other countries yeah. latin america southeast asia but these people have to get registered but then they also have to pay some amount of tax hmm. and and i thought this is not how it should work in india looking yeah. at the situation looking at their revenue sources yeah. so this was a very beautiful thing as you mentioned you know so they did not completely copy the western model or the other models that existed, but they realized their own existing situation, the situation in India, they understood it, and they had this empathetic view to it. Yeah. And that was very nice. That was very nice that came up. Yeah. And it's also very nice to see that, for example, uh, when I was growing up, uh, the, these uh, street vendors were, were kind of disappearing, mm -hmm. but now they are coming back also here in Europe. Yeah. And also the street food became a kind of new new wave also in in germany in uh, in the netherlands in hungary mm -hmm. so people just uh, and also the <coughs> the regulation yeah. i just know more about the hungarian situation that uh, for example these uh, small producers who made some some food for uh, i think it was even a 
almost a decade or more, they were kind of uh, paralyzed because of the bureaucracy and all of the hygienic and whatever the requirements yeah. requirements and all of the machinery what they had to buy yeah and they were yeah you know and the supermarkets took over a lot of uh, uh, gray area mm -hmm. and then on the other other hand the, the supermarkets came with a lot of food scandals yeah so it's very very difficult to see uh, where is the right balance mm -hmm. but I also conducted my, my research related to, to food okay. and uh, also supermarkets and street vendors and yeah. uh, again uh, most of my uh, interviewees were saying that oh I don't trust in the supermarkets I rather go to the old ladies on the yeah. market so this the trust came back again as a very important uh, notion very true very true because uh, i believe that what supermarkets or large organizations have done is they have made the human interaction very inhumane yeah. so the person working in supermarket is just doing his jobs he is not really that interested they can be kind and polite yeah. to you but they don't really have your well-being into account because you don't establish a, a informal relationship with them uh, the cashiers can change, the person working there change their shifts. So you don't really establish the connect. Sometimes you do and it helps. What happens with the street vendor is you tend to go to the same person. Over a period of time they know you, they know your preferences. And then the human niceness kicks in, the altruism kicks in that they do want you to have a good feeling with them also because that is where the whole social credit comes the, in yeah, the reciprocity the reciprocity yeah. comes in yeah. so you don't mind paying them a bit yeah. extra you engage into social talks you sometimes even ask them about their family yeah. they would share about their kids and eventually it doesn't it doesn't stop just at this transaction of monetary and the goods level yeah. it sometimes goes beyond that i remember uh, we would have my grandmother would have this woman who would come every day at noon to sell fruits and she mm. would buy from them. But uh, she would sometimes bring something very exotic fruit in a very small portion and she would just give it away. Like here, I got this today extra and you can have this. And the opposite my grandmother would do. There would be something in the house that either we would want to discard or once the daughter of this street vendor, she was graduating for high school and my grandmother gave her like a nice fountain pen as a gift, like as a graduation gift, yeah. without ever having met the daughter, actually. Yeah. But but these kind of relationships built in and uh, they help them. It's a nice example of uh, codependency. What Absolutely. Is because the, the normal, that would be the normal. But, but that is how the institutions shape it, because here in the West, the bureaucracy has shaped it in such a way that street vendors are illegal and... And, yeah. and, and also partly it was true that they were engaging into some illegal acts but in India that's not the case uh, yeah. there would be very few of them but relatively on a larger scale these are the honest people who are trying to make a make a living with it uh, but as you mentioned about the concept of street food uh, I find it a bit cringy every time that what is called a street food here is just not a street food it's a yeah. uh, it's just a new form of business model of a restaurant rather than having a fixed place getting onto a food truck and uh, selling stuff because here they do have higher costs or, or because of the bureaucracy in terms of getting registered in terms of the hygiene that they have to maintain uh, and as you raised the point earlier about hygiene uh, 
I believe hygiene is a very relative term depending on yeah. country. So the Northern Europe considers the Southern Europe unhygienic. The Southern Europe considers the Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe considers the Eastern Asia at different levels of hygiene, you know. So it's, it's, it's all very relative. Or within India, we have different yeah. levels also. Uh, so so it's, it's quite relative. Uh, I would say yes. Because these are also uneducated, illiterate people uh, coming from a very different economic section of the society. So they are not exposed to what hygiene is. But this organization, as I said, Seva, it engaged into these things because it was like, okay, it's not just the law that we have to change, but it is also these various things we have to build up around them to make them more resilient uh, that we have to engage in. And one of the concepts they brought in was hygiene. So during my survey, I interviewed around uh, 450 street vendors uh, in the city of Ahmedabad. And you could see a noticeable difference between the people who would engage with this organization, yeah. either formally or informally. That means they might be a member of the organization or they may not even be member, but they do interact with the organization and the other members closely. They would have a different way of presenting their street cart yeah. or of organizing of keeping the produce clean than the ones who were not there yeah. so so once they are shown a better way of doing it they would do it in a better way i i would quote maya angelo here where she says that you do better when you know better yeah. Yeah. so that was the same thing they did not know better to do better at yeah. that point yeah, but i i don't know for example uh, in a local context uh, does uh, the almost uh, extreme hygiene what uh, in northern northern europe you can find mm -hmm. uh, so the lack of it the, does it affect uh, the local people or is it mainly for the, the the tourists because mostly the the western people say that i was in india and I was yeah it's dirty yeah. true true uh, yeah it's it's once you know the system then yeah. uh, you it's it's a very local context a very cultural context yeah. uh, that is there uh, uh, so yeah as an Indian food as an Indian person you somewhere know how to find whether it's safe or not yeah. you do make mistakes I mean the the yeah but uh, the same happens in the yeah. West also yeah. you go to a fancy restaurant and they handle your seafood wrong or something wrong and you end up having some issues uh, so being a local person you do realize where to go how to go yeah how to judge things and again the opposite also happens is that you also have built a relationship yeah. so sometimes yeah. you don't even need to know you trust the other person and that person takes care of you so there are many times this i can say i have experienced it and when i would go with my mother to buy groceries uh, the street vendor would just say no like he would have some produce or some fruit and my mom would be like okay i want to buy this and he'll be like mm, no, I don't think you should buy this one. It's not that high quality or it won't taste that good. Uh, tomorrow I will bring something else and you can buy it. Yeah. So he was nice. making... So they, they don't want to uh, injure the relationship. Exactly. Uh, they exactly. It like, yeah. okay. Because yeah. they, they have established it. They know that uh, because it's a very local economy that goes on. So, yeah. so nobody travels to an, another neighborhood to buy from the street vendor. Yeah. So it's the same number of street vendors and the same number of local people living in there. Yeah. So, so they realize that you live in this community, you live in this ecosystem, and you have to look at a long-term benefit, at a long-term 
relationship also. Yeah. So if you screw up one time, probably the person will go to the next street vendor because the yeah. competition is high. There is and a large you number. have to build it up again. With exactly. With somebody yeah. new. And that is difficult. That is yeah. difficult because everybody has their own preferences yeah. and stuff. So, so then they take care of this. They realize uh, what is good, what is yeah. not, and uh, they help, help you with that. I can see many similar patterns, uh, which is more human than uh, Indian or Europe based. Exactly. But uh, uh, especially after talking to this guy uh, last mm -hmm. time, Eric, uh, who is about branding, yeah. he was pointing out very correctly that these brands are actually taking over all of these uh, human mic interactions. Yeah, micro. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, interactions what we yeah. have and what we build to create trust mm -hmm. but they put a lot of money on it in yeah. it and then the problem is that often the consequences or the if, it, if something goes wrong then uh, they are just too big to you know avoid them for example in the Netherlands uh, some of the I think uh, the Albert Ham group yeah is controlling the 90% of the supermarket chain mm -hmm. So it's huge. Or yeah. also in, in Hungary, there is a Tesco and Spar, mm -hmm. and like a couple of them. Yeah. And if they, if there is something wrong, then uh, then the whole country is, you know, in a faces the consequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not just country. I I can share a small experience. Last year in Rome, uh, I decided to put up my extra room in the apartment on Airbnb. Yeah. And I hosted one person and then the second person and then we got robbed mm. uh, entirely. All my data, my electronics, my watches, everything was gone. And I reported to Airbnb and uh, they did not even bother to call me back. I had to mm. call them every time. I wrote emails. Uh, in the end, it was nothing I could do. They, they did nothing about it. I could do nothing about it. They had their policies. And suddenly they were showing me the fine print in the policy of what is covered, what is not covered. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was gone. But at the same time, the system is so big that I still use Airbnb when I travel because uh, it has become kind of unavoidable yeah. in a way. And this is this is where these whole big organizations, uh, the dependence on them is changing how we interact with things. Uh, and then I found a very interesting opposite scenario into these street vendors where the power is in the grassroots and not into some big organization. It was into the big organization. It was with this police system and the judicial system of India. And then this grassroots movement was able to collect together, gather together and work in a, in a way that they could change these institutions. Because what the problem is happening is uh, institutions become such enforcing rules yeah. of uh, they, they they tell us what are the rules of the game and you have to work according to them yeah. or you are out of the system but the other thing that is happening is they have become highly uh, highly obscure in a way and rigid to change yeah. and it is very difficult to change institutions it is very, nearly impossible so then this was a very amazing example of where we could see how institutions were changing yeah. and that too by these marginalized weak people but because they were working on this informal contract with each other based uh -huh. on trust they were working on this whole system where they could see there was this humane interaction between them uh, based on trust uh, that created a, a sum total which was larger than the institution itself yeah. 
yes also it's a it's a power struggle a power dynamics because sometimes even if a grassroots uh, uh, movement is get uh, cent- is, is gets centralized uh-huh. then uh, whoever is on the top uh, yeah. it can be yeah yeah so, of course that happens uh, that is yeah. happening here as well i am getting a bit worried in the last <laughs> few months uh, after this legalization yeah. now again the power dynamics within the communities yeah. are coming up yeah. uh, so yes so that is where i hope that they realize that the organization needs to be built the whole organizational model needs to be uh, decentralized yeah. in a way rather than centralized yeah. model uh, which which then uh, brought me to my next uh, yeah. project uh, where the beauty of that whole uh, whole society was the decentralization yeah so let's talk about auroville yeah so, and that's the auroville project yeah. uh, so can you please introduce auroville in in nutshell uh, sure so auroville is this uh, community formed of uh, uh, international people but located in india geographically located in the southern part of india near a french ex colony of uh, pondicherry uh, it has its roots in a spiritual inclination because in pondicherry there was this uh, spiritual ashram established by sri aurobindo and uh, he had a, a partner and a follower uh, mira alfasa who was known as mother and then at some point mother realized that she needs to build something separate from the ashram itself mm. because ashram as as we were talking about earlier it started becoming a bit bureaucratic yeah. uh, the ashram was established also more for the indian people who had a more spiritual inclination yeah. than an alternate way of living inclination yeah. uh, while the western people who were coming in they were not able to fit into this box so she she created this auroville as a separate society in 1968 and uh, this year is their 50th 69. anniversary of existence of uh, healthy existence i would say uh so so that's there uh, auroville as a society is very highly evolving in terms of systems in terms of processes in terms of things that they do mm-hmm. and that largely comes because they don't have any centralized notion of what it should be so what i find beautiful is that they have a very strong notion of questioning things of complaining so it starts with first you start to question whatever is there whatever system whatever process is there people strongly question it do we need that yeah. and if they don't need it if they don't find the correct answer they do complain about it very strongly uh, now this happens in the rest of the world also or largely not i feel india as a society has stopped complaining we have become so complacent mm. because of so many other struggles in life that we mm. don't complain about the existing things that are there but in rest of the world the concept of complain is there yeah. but then that complain does not go anywhere it just yeah. remains as a complain and it just drowns away yeah in some so places energy uh, it just disappears yeah basically. exactly <laughs> but in some places it does gets acknowledged and then yeah. you see the impact Yeah. So I find Dutch society very beautiful in this way is that people yeah. do complain a lot about things here but then those complaints are collected they are gathered they are looked into it and that is I believe that is how Netherlands is number 2 in terms of innovation mm. because when you have complain then you have to solve them and when you try to solve them you come up with innovative products so you are constantly questioning and complaining 
And that is where my part of my research focuses us strongly on the notion of a feedback loop. That feedback loop is very important into the whole concept of innovation. And Auroville has this strangely, without realizing they have it very strong. So all their systems and processes are designed in such a way that everything is open for a review, everything is open for complaint, but these complaints are also collected, they are they are registered in a way. They don't just uh, disappear or evaporate over time, they are registered. And again, there is a feedback loop on it. So the, the people who are uh, given the responsibility to handle that particular task or project, they are supposed to respond back on these complaints, come up with a new solution, and that new solution is again open for a review and feedback. Yeah. So this is a double feedback loop that they create and that has made them pretty strong in terms of the decisions they have taken that they don't usually regret them. There have been some instances where it was not well thought of, yeah. but most of the time any action they have taken, they did not have to reverse that action. They did not yeah. have to retrace it because it was so well thought of. So that's that's one part of the Auroville. Uh, but primarily Auroville has these four points as its charter that you can uh, see on their website also, is uh, that uh, the first is the concept of non-ownership. Yeah. Uh, so that changes uh, dynamically many things because we as humans are constantly brought up with this notion that this is my land, this is my house, this is my space, this is what I own, and that is mine. So that was where the primary contract started. Hmm. Auroville completely removed that, that the entire Auroville belongs to Auroville Foundation yeah. as a community, and every member is a part of that foundation. So it belongs to everybody, but it does not belong to any person individually. Yeah. Uh, so even if you want to join an Auroville uh, as a community, Auroville member, and uh, you want to build a house there, you are free to do that. They, I mean, after going through the process a bit, yeah. uh, you you fund for your own housing at times. You They will allocate you the land, but the rest of the resources are yours. Yeah. With a clear notion and a clear signing of the contract that uh, the decision on this house eventually belongs to the community. So if you pass away or if you decide to leave, the house goes back to the community and no, you can't inherit it. Yeah. Your kids, your children or your family next to the kin cannot inherit this. So the moment this is built in very strongly, it alters the whole paradigm. It alters how people relate with each other. It alters how people associate, how people transact with each other. Yeah. Because no matter what big a house you have, it still belongs to Auroville and not to you. Hmm. So so that was the first, uh, uh, first thing that they have. Uh, the second point on the charter is uh, non-ownership. Uh, I, I, I may not be speaking no, in the order. No religion. Uh, no religion. Uh, uh, so yeah, so they do not. So though you feel a bit spiritual there, yeah. it is not a religious sect. Yeah. It is not definitely not a cult. Yeah. It is not even any kind of sect. Yeah. Uh, people are allowed to practice whatever they want in yeah. their homes. Uh, but as a community, they do not have any temple or any particular uh, religious uh, domain to Only which... Only a meditation they, center. They, the uh, meditation or, center is but there. It's, it's totally religious, uh, religion-free. It's, it's absolutely religion-free and it's not even a completely yeah. a meditation center. Yeah. It's just a place to go and be quiet. Yeah. 
that's it so they don't even say you have to focus or meditate there they don't say anything the only rule they have is you have to be quiet that's it just silence it's and it's called a silence chamber it's not even called a meditation so you can stand you can do whatever pose you want uh keeping it in the decorum of the environment but that's it uh then they have a third uh, one of their charter is about uh, unending education hmm. so about youth and unending education and that again reflects back to innovation because when we talk of yeah. unending education is basically it it boils down it distills down to the notion of innovation in a way of of learning of constantly learning constantly questioning constantly looking at things from new perspective yeah. uh so the the big uh, globe the golden ball as they call it matri mandir uh is on solar power since 1997 mm. so the world is realizing the concept of solar power and how while that big structure is already on solar power since then since so early on so oroville had realized very early on because of this whole questioning of everything that they do of how to use energy what yeah. forms of energy they want so entire oroville is already carbon positive mm. in a way that they had one of the members had uh, built windmills that offset the energy consumption of oroville so the entire city of oroville electricity is free in oroville and yeah. uh, they are producing more than they consume and there's a large usage of uh, solar panels or various other green technologies within oroville so this comes again from this unending education charter that they have uh i'm not sure if i remember the all the points uh you can just look it up uh, oroville charter and it should open the oroville website uh so the first was the non ownership uh money is not allowed that is uh a very important uh, part of how things are structured there but we can uh, we can say that money is not allowed to be the means of the main or, goal or of oroville yeah so that, so it's not is, like there is uh, yeah, yeah yeah so it's not i mean people take it differently people yeah. usually who visit oroville for a shorter period yeah. they criticize it that oh it says money is not allowed but yeah. uh, they do use money uh, they have their own oroville card a digital form mm. of card where you can use it for various products uh but what they basically mean is uh that oroville as a place is not to not for your economic development it is yeah. for a holistic development yeah. and that is how again but because it started from this concept of money is not allowed so then it was like okay so how do we live how do we survive yeah. so then they built in the concept of a basic maintenance so as yeah. the world is now discovering the the concept of basic income yeah. oroville has been doing it for around last 30 years mm. is that every person who was working in oroville will get a certain amount of money yeah. uh for their basic sustenance uh so that amount at the present comes to somewhere around 200 euros per person mm. for adults and uh, around 100 euros or 100 plus euros for a child uh uh the thing is that the people have to work in certain kind of uh, the jobs that they have so what they call as the whole oroville system is divided into two kind of jobs the the but but, but they can they can uh, 
switch jobs so that they is, can that, absolutely that no, switch no, so no i was coming to that point rigid, yeah exactly rigid. because every job has nearly the same economic value uh, people are not stuck in the jobs that they don't like people actually go for a job that they really like they really enjoy and when they realize that they want to do through their spiritual order uh, exactly so for their spiritual order for their skills that they already had or the skills that they really want to develop but what happens is that the quality of work and the quality of outcome is very high because yeah. the motivator is not this economic contract the motivator is not your salary the motivator is you yourself and the work you enjoy i would say that this system allows people to find the passion the real they, passion what they, what, what they want to do in true, life true and Absolutely. that uh, releases such a potential yeah what you see in many artists exactly uh, exactly people or sport mm-hmm. people who get into this uh, flow state yeah. you can also say but i'm very curious how did all of you got into your radar uh, you heard it from somewhere or even in italy or you had it uh, in your radar oh. years ahead and what was so, your first impression when you went there like wow <laughs> okay uh, it is a very funny story i got to know about oroville uh, through uh, some of my american indian friends mm-hmm. ami ravel she uh, had visited that and she actually gave me bookmark from oroville mm-hmm. uh, made from one of the oroville unit oroville papers it was years uh, before you it was it your... was in 2013 yeah. we were friends in yeah. 2013 2014 so that was few months before i moved mm-hmm. to rome mm-hmm. so i got to know about this oroville and they talked about it but they were constantly and then these two maya and ami they were students of uh, the environmental science mm. so they were looking oroville from the environmental science perspective of uh, it uh, being a eco-friendly city an eco-conscious eco-friendly yeah. society and that was my initial assumption of oroville that it would probably be like one street with some shops which sell eco-friendly yeah. stuff or something so in 2015 summer so after i moved to rome uh, July was very hot in summer and we still had holidays in August as well and I suddenly planned a trip to India and I decided to travel around and not stay at one place and then I put Oroville on my list I'm like okay it's about time I haven't been to southern part of India much yeah. so I will cover Oroville I arrived there uh, the idea was to stay there for 2 3 days and I ended up staying there for 10 days hmm. uh and uh, it was mind boggling everything because my idea was like either it would be a small place with eco friendly stuff or it would be a bit of a hippie community yeah. with uh, uh, i mean no offense to the hippie community but uh, with not something very serious you know yeah. it's very temporal uh, that they do yeah. and the focus is on uh, individuals uh, at an individual level so nothing at a larger community level yeah. uh, but when i went there the kind of architecture they have the kind of systems they had and the processes they had it made me realize that they are a very serious society hmm. but still i was still there as a tourist uh, i was interested i was staying with one person a german doctor there uh, and uh, we were discussing about some things and how i'm a researcher and i'm trying to study something i was not very clear hmm. and he said that we have a town hall and town hall has all the data and archives Hmm. plus i had seen the website and the website is very informative very structured yeah. a lot of material so that showed me that there is some seriousness going on here what is there i didn't know completely hmm. 
after i went back to rome i was working on my my research proposal and i somewhere wanted to study this and that is how it started initially yeah. as a yeah. non capitalist form and then looking more and more into various themes i started reading a lot about oroville i started getting in touch with people from oroville hmm. and uh, and now it's 3 years and now i feel i'm a large part of the the community there i'm working with uh, one startup there uh, called as lightfish which is building uh, uh, lights and furniture from the from the fallen trees so they don't cut yeah. trees for the wood but they use the existing fallen trees for that uh, i'm working with another person hayes Hmm. has become a good friend so yeah what i what i really like because i also looked up uh, the whole background of hmm. uh, the founder and uh, how it uh, came and also what you see nowadays in all the villages also about the uh, spiritual growth or we can say that not spiritual but the uh, kind of uh, individual growth they raising the consciousness yes yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the same time very practical mm-hmm. because uh, in an ashram or yeah. in a meditation center you can just get close from the world but it's not necessarily why we are here yep and at the same time the westerns are very practical they want to fix uh-huh. stuff uh, constantly searching for problems yeah. and solving them also yeah. yeah so but to combine them that's the that's the the beauty of it so i and, exactly and that gives the the kind of uh, the world uh, the yeah, yeah. The beauty and mm-hmm. also the nice combination and i've seen this uh, the 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 mother was yeah. uh, uh, she had a background uh, more she was more spiritual yeah. what i see all, all of uh, her life she was into arts and spiritual mm-hmm. uh, seeking but Sri Arubindo uh-huh. uh, he was an indian born born yeah. uh, a person who got a complete full english education yeah. and that's where what i see most of the time when it, the two gets combined mm-hmm. that's the most beautiful uh, whole true true i mean it can it can get into a very negative way of uh, picking up the bad of both the cultures mm, yeah can also happen it's happening yeah. now in india with this crazy fad for uh, the, mimicking the western culture without yeah. realizing okay. what it means okay. or how to use it you know yeah. uh, but uh, mother also had said it like when she had had the dream of oroville uh, yeah. as she said uh, she had said that the people will come from far off so yeah. what we mean are international people but the site has to be in india Yeah. and i strongly feel that if oroville was only built of non indians then it would not be what it is mm. and if oroville was built only of indians also it would not be what it is yeah. how i see is the by being in india uh, it somewhere keeps you very grounded india as a society we are still very social yeah. uh, and the center of the society is not an individual but the center of the society is the community the society yeah. itself and that alters how you how you prioritize things you don't prioritize your own needs which sometimes yeah. you suffer for it but most of the time you constantly look out for other you always look out for the larger good of the community rather than your individual benefit western society is highly individualistic it is about yeah. me me doing everything and then 
the second things come into place whether it's the parents the family friends society at large when these two came in there are many clashes that happen there the the indians don't understand why western people have this outlook of constantly changing challenging building mm. and the western don't realize why indians are so slow and dormant and mm. stagnant mm. Uh, because they too come they come from these two different thought streams in india you are born with that whatever is there is supposed to be there the way it is mm. you're not supposed to question it too much you're supposed to be okay with it yeah and the westerners are you can build your own reality you you do it uh, so there are clashes but once the clash settles down then comes this beautiful output of uh western people able to innovate in a very frugal manner at with very low resources with very low money physical resources and still come up with beautiful products so uh, how i see is and an indian as a society somewhere i feel if we were innovative which i think we were at large uh, we have lost that indians have forgotten how to be innovative indians know how to be cheap now they can provide you the cheapest solutions but it is this race to the bottom that you have forgotten to improvise things you have forgotten to make things beautiful sustainable for longer period and invest as you said you know there are these systems and rules that come up but then you can't even breathe into that Yeah. it becomes so much rigid that you cannot breathe so one is too much breathing without realizing building anything and the other is too strict and then in orville there is this beautiful mixture yeah. of a correct balance if we can say so this balance is overall as a society but within this community of course there are pockets which behave differently there are still individualistic pockets or there are these uh, now this is increasing is that the indian orovillians feel that they are a bit secluded hmm. so they are becoming a small sub community within the larger community hmm. and then the quality goes down of how yeah. things are done but overall as a community still the way of working is uh is the combination of two good things the good things yeah. from the west are there so the concept of perfection of keeping time of doing things in a nicer way aesthetically every manner and yet keeping humans as the center you know being yeah. being nice to other people keeping it more human yeah. comes in and were there uh, attempts to replicate a similar model or uh, i mean i guess you can just uh, replicate the intention in the beginning because some of the basic rule is just let it grow yeah uh, I, I uh, replicate as in if you are talking about outside in the world yeah yeah somewhere else in another continent for uh example. i think it is starting now because uh initially the people who were coming were coming to live in oroville they were not tourists so much yeah. then the tourism has picked up yeah. but then it takes time for a tourist to really know so the people who visit oroville for a week or a month as a tourist don't really get it what it is so they get some parts of it they form a idea of their own and then they might go back and not work so it takes a time for this momentum to build up but i think it is building up now so recently i'm trying to get in touch with this uh, in norway there is this private city that is coming up liberstad mm. and they are trying to do a bit of the same thing an anarchist mm. movement uh, there is a christiania in the christiana 
I'm pronouncing it wrong, in Copenhagen, mm. which is an anarchist society, which partially is similar to Auroville, but then it is very different from Auroville altogether. Okay. Uh, so, so there are these small things that have come up. But as I said, it is this unique combination of the Western and the Eastern mix, yeah. or the Western and the Indian mix, mm. uh, that has made Auroville the way it is. So I don't know if it can be replicated. Maybe parts of it would be, yeah. but yeah. Uh, entire replication, maybe not. Or maybe it would, the Indians living in Europe yeah. would start somewhere with the Western people and uh, it yeah. might. But at the moment, there is no other community that I know of. There are other eco-villages and intentional communities that do interact closely with Auroville. So there is something in US, I can't put a name on it. That community has closer ties with Auroville. So they exchange people, they talk about people visit them or they visit their, uh, what they are doing. They keep each other updated. Findhorn in... Uh, Ireland, I think, mm. or in UK, somewhere in UK, Finhorn community is there. That one has close ties with Auroville, and the Aurovillians have mm. a closer ties with there. Uh, there is one in Italy near Bologna and one near Turin. Turin. Mm. So they are also a bit of intentional communities, and that draws the attraction. Cool. So there is a kind of an exchange going yeah. on a bit, but the replication, I think, is too yeah. early. Yeah, or, or maybe it's the, also not the right uh, uh, use of word if I want to say replicate. So industrial, it's really no, <laughs> no. I mean, it yeah. should replicate. But, you know, if we uh, see that, for example, Auroville is planning to, or is actually, I see some patterns which is following the natural laws or the yeah. laws of nature, if we mm -hmm. can say that. Then, uh, yeah, a tree has, uh, uh, you know, fruits and and then yeah. seeds. So that's the question, if some Aurovillians maybe uh, go back to their home country and start a certain uh, yeah, a a similar initiative, if it's happening True. or not. But again, then they need to have uh, also finance behind them. They exactly. have to take the leadership, but mm -hmm. also the leadership should be not hier hierarchy based. So it's a very challenging... Exactly, it's, it's this unique combination yeah. uh, and that is what makes Auroville very unique yeah. uh, and a bit difficult for my project is because one of the things in management they always ask is, okay, so how do you plan to replicate this? Why should we study yeah. if it is unique? Yeah. Uh, but there are bits and pieces that can yeah. be replicated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I also think Auroville is the way it is because it got a legal recognition. Yeah. So it's not a hippie community. It's not some yeah. project, temporary project. It is legally recognized by the government of India. Yeah. The government of India created a special law for Auroville, the Auroville Foundation Act, yeah. that gives Auroville a special status. Uh, and that helps to facilitate it a bit. Yeah. In the Western world or outside India, let's say if somebody plans to start, we don't know if their government would give them that status. Yeah. So Auroville as a community does not need to have the same municipality rules or or to even have a political party. Yeah. They can be without it. Uh, they have their own foundation, so they can decide how to run it, which yeah. I don't think any of the governments in the world want that, you know, to give to their people, okay, you yeah. run your own system. Yeah. Uh, so, so that makes it uh, also there. But it's interesting that you said the from the nature, the concept of tree, yeah. 
uh, how I see Oroville, and, and I recently presented to them in March, I presented to some Aurovillians the model that I'm working on, of, if I have to look at. So I use the, the tree structure for the street vendor project, actually. Mm. Uh, and then there is this unique tree uh, called Banyan tree, which is a bit tropical tree. Mm. Uh, so it has like many branches, but it has aerial roots. And yeah. these aerial roots eventually come to the ground and they become the trunks then. Wow. And they support the tree. So even if the core trunk is uh, dried up, is destroyed, mm. the whole tree still continues. And these trees are very widespread, very huge, large. Wow. They are a bit of an ecosystem into themselves. Mm. Seva as an organization uses that as a symbol for its own organizational model. And it is doing it very rightfully. Because all the various facilities that initially you mentioned, the insurance, the hygiene, they started to build these subunits into the larger unit, but to support the core and still to have an independent identity. Yeah. So they don't directly depend on the core and yet they are a part of this whole system. Auroville, on other hand, uh, I see it more as a honeycomb model. Yeah. So if, if we follow these three, four characteristics of a honeycomb, yeah. uh, so one, a honeycomb, every unit is of equal size, of equal mm. shape, of equal importance. Mm. And it has three members into the structure. There is the queen, the queen yeah. bee, uh, there are the worker bees, and then there are the drones. Yeah. Uh, now if I have to use the metaphor, the queen bee basically tells what the honeycomb is. So one honeycomb is different from the other honeycomb based on the queen. A queen decides yeah. the size of the honeycomb in a way. And the queen, because of its pheromes, it guides the worker bees. So the worker bees can come back to it based on the pheromones yeah. that this are. Now if I have to replicate it, the queen bee in Auroville can be the mother itself, but also the various values of Auroville, the, the Matri Mandir, the mother, the, the writings mm. that they have, the charter itself. So this is their guiding principle. The guiding principle becomes the, the the queen of what to do and what not to do. Mm. Then there are the worker bees and, and uh, honeycomb is a very decentralized model, yeah. a, a very decentralized yeah. society. Every worker bee has an equal responsibility, yeah. has equal weightage and that's it. There is queen, there is worker bee and there is drone. There is no other hierarchy between that. And that you see in Auroville a lot. So there could be a CEO, yeah. let's say of a company in Auroville, and there could be a worker and they both are very equal because they both yeah. know that the company does not belong to him. The company yeah. belongs to Auroville. He's earning money for the community, not for himself and the other way around. So, yeah. so, so that makes it a very flat society per se, which we usually don't see. I mean, there are many flat organizations, they say, but it's not really flat. This yeah. one is genuinely yeah. flat. Uh, so, so that's where I see it as worker bees. And then there are drones. Now the role of a drone is basically to populate a honeybee, uh, to yeah. populate the honeycomb. Yeah. So when the queen decides to either leave the honeycomb or, uh, or if the honeycomb becomes too large, it needs to split up or there is some danger, they need to vacate. Yeah. So these drones are the male drones who go and they mate with a queen bee in one session and then the yeah. queen bee goes further and lays eggs throughout yeah. the her life cycle. Yeah. So this is the life cycle of the whole honeycomb uh, thing. And the drones in Auroville I see are people like highs, are people who are on the periphery of Auroville, who yeah. interact a lot with Auroville and Aurovillians, but they also interact a lot with outer world. Yeah. 
Yeah. And these would be the people who would eventually be responsible of creating these micro Auroville communities around the world. Mm. So Auroville does has its own international chapter. Yeah. In fact, Netherlands has a very strong uh, Auroville uh, international community, AVI Netherlands, mm. who are doing active work. So what these people do is they live in Netherlands. They are in close contact with Auroville, but they are also in close contact with various Dutch government agencies, people. Mm. So if you are a Dutch person and interested to know more about Auroville, you can contact them here locally, mm. know about them, but also various kind of grants that come in, these people try to bridge. Mm. So this is how I see the society is Auroville will expand because of yeah. the drones. Yeah. A bit sad part is that this, has not been looked upon in Auroville now, but they started to question it. So in the last two years, since the 50th anniversary, it was a good trigger for them. They were like, yeah. okay, we are 50 year old. Yeah. We were supposed to be this, but we are yeah. not there now. What do we do? Evaluation. So they are, they are yeah. evaluating themselves very hard. Yeah. Uh, answers are not there yet. Yeah. Uh, I have this one proposal that maybe if you look at it this way, if you realize who is your worker B, who's yeah. your drone be and how you can facilitate the drone a bit more to populate uh, that can change and the second notion they have is uh, because in in the initial writings mother said that Auroville as a community needs to be a community of 50,000 people yeah. uh, and I see it differently I'm like it does not necessarily has to be 50,000 in one geographical area yeah. but it could be as you said, you know, small pockets, small yeah. Aurovilles around the world and yeah. the sum total could be 50,000. Yeah. So, so, so maybe she, she meant uh, uh, kind of uh, 50,000 people on the same level of consciousness and same experience. She ne exactly. And she from never that said. on it could uh, spread because yeah. if we give it a geological location, mm -hmm. then it's uh, at one, one hand is also uh, very fragile you exactly. know like other authorities or whatever yeah. they don't like oh it works oh we don't want that yeah or uh, the other thing is then it, it would seem more like an empire which uh -huh. grows 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 yeah, grows, yeah. grows and uh, yeah and then you start excluding they people they, yeah they don't want that exactly no. that too but you also start excluding what if you reach fifty thousand and then a new person comes in and they're like no we are fifty thousand we are yeah. full you cannot yeah. become a part of us yeah. So how do you decide? So that is what, uh, and I find mother very interesting in this point. I'm not spiritual much about yeah. Auroville, but she created these vague uh, outline guideline for Auroville. But yeah. if you interpret, and there are multiple ways to interpret it, yeah. but somewhere I also feel that she knew what she wanted. So she kept it vague. Yeah. And yet there is a clarity in it, you know, yet yeah. there is only one way in which that vague outcome can really be presented. Yeah. So I find her a bit mystical in that way. Uh, I have read some of her work and she has strong management principles into it. Yeah. She's not talking just a spiritual part. She talks, I mean, when you talk of uh, the property, so she said it in these words that Auroville belongs to everybody and yet it belongs to nobody. Yeah. But if I have to reduce it to a management concept, it is talking about non-ownership, yeah. the management concept yeah. of non-ownership, the money. So it is talking about uh, alternative economy, you know, not yeah. necessarily the monetary economy, uh, unending education. So she's yeah. talking about knowledge and innovation. Lifelong learning or lifelong like learning. Is, is basically, or yeah, exactly. 
So sometimes I look at it and I'm like, did she have an MBA or something? Like she knew the concepts and she then spoke them in a language that people can understand in a way. Yeah, I mean, uh, also the if you look at the technological innovations, mm-hmm. but also most of them are, I mean, we can talk about it here too, that uh, they are somehow channeling down some source of information from a kind of cloud system, even from Edison or Steve Jobs or whatever, yeah, or yeah. Elon Musk, whoever you actually dig into a bit, uh, mm-hmm. what they were doing as a daily practice, no one was born uh, uh, completely, a, yeah. co- completely enlightened, like even uh, Nikola Tesla. Yeah. All of these leaders had some some kind of uh, a guidance, a source yeah, that yeah. they referred to. Absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, in one sense, uh, we are kind of uh, reinventing the wheels, and mm-hmm. we have to relearn what we already true. know. True. <laughs> true. And yeah. uh, actually, I want to have a question: That are you planning to be an hour of your resident at one point? Uh, I don't have any plans for next 10 years at least yeah. to be an Aurovillian yeah. resident because uh, it does uh, requires a different kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, it enables many other things and it uh, disables certain things. Yeah. And uh, at the moment I'm okay yeah. with what I'm doing. I yeah. am currently in Europe. I would like to live some years here, experience yeah. a certain different life path. Yeah. Uh, but at the same moment, it gives me a ray of hope that if I have to ever return back to India, then I probably will become an Aurovillian. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but as I said, you know, I want to be at the moment be this drone who is on yeah. the periphery, yeah. who yeah. connects Auroville with the outer world yeah. uh, and helps it to grow bigger in, in whatever form it can. So, yeah. And uh, the other thing is, are you... Uh, doing some spiritual exercise daily or at least yoga or uh, I have done Vipassana yeah. uh, and I follow Vipassana uh, oh. not on a daily basis yeah. but uh, more as and when I need it I, I wish yeah. I was a bit more disciplined and could yeah. do it daily or yeah. in a certain uh, disciplined manner uh, but thankfully I feel that I know the technique a bit so yeah. any moment of crisis or when I feel uh, things are a bit turbulent, I immediately yeah. go back to that and use okay. that as my guidance. So for, so for those who are not familiar with the Vipassana, Vipassana is a meditation technique and uh, you can actually start uh, practicing in a 10 days silent retreat yeah. where there is no phone, no books, no talking, uh, waking up at 5 or 4.30. Yeah, 4.30. 4.30 and have uh, 10, day, 10, 10 days with 10 hours meditation per day and if you realize that most of the world is about uh, your attention and grabbing your attention what to buy what to eat what to do then uh, if you close out all of that then your attention will uh, turn inwards yeah. and uh, that can be a very transformative uh, experience true and uh, uh, only thing I would add is that uh, it is a free 10 day thing you yeah, don't have free. to pay for accommodation or food yeah. uh, and in donate. this life of, of yeah. an average of 60 years of our life into yeah. 365 days I think people should experiment for these 10 days yeah. experiment it if you don't like it don't go yeah. back yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but I would definitely highly recommend it to everybody to at least try it once. Yeah. And uh, the positive part of it, uh, it's it's free. You can donate. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, the the whole concept that is uh, actually. Uh, maintained by the community and donations because you can also do uh, uh, service there service there yeah indeed but if you really want to go into your professional uh, level that this guy Goenka who came up with this technique or mm -hmm. brought back from a very ancient uh, roots he was running many ministries in India yeah and he was uh, practicing the meditation it's one hour in the morning one hour in the evening officially right yeah and then he also uh, used it in prisons mm -hmm. but also all of the employees of the ministries were uh, practicing the meditation yeah. and they were super efficient yeah and then uh, i mean now vipassana has global centers and uh, uh, it is it is no longer a very niche concept yeah. people are doing it and yeah. uh, they are experiencing changes uh, in their life in the way they do things uh, and it's also a bit like cooking you need to keep cooking the product to yeah. master the skill if you yeah. stop you learn a recipe one time and if you don't cook it again and again of course then it doesn't work yeah. Uh, so yeah I, I call Vipassana as a, as a cooking class Yeah. You can you can cook on your own and yeah. you know you can experiment with things and sometimes you stumble and you come yeah. across a good answer and yeah. then you forget it uh, but once you attend a proper cooking class where you learn the instructions the recipe very correctly then you can't go wrong with the output you can't go wrong with the final dish yeah. and that was vipassana to me i had experimented it on my own by traveling by other stuff but i would always then forget it and then the final dish would not be the way it was yeah. but once i learned went through the vipassana then it is a very structured uh, yeah a recipe that i can instantly follow whenever i need it so that's how i see it that's my metaphor for vipassana okay. cool okay. I'm, i'm very happy to hear that you are practicing So I think uh, we uh, we, we, we cover most of the okay. the topics what we planned. Yeah. And I hope uh, this talk will resonate with uh, other people too, so they can be the drones of uh, the overview sure. message. Yeah. And if they don't know where to start, just dig into the literature a bit. A yeah, at, uh, absolutely. Who are these people? Or just uh, sign up for a ten days uh, Vipassana meditation, course, and then you will find uh, some okay. truths within. Cool. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so I much. I wish you a lot of success with your thank research. You. And you too. And be the nice girl. <laughs> and yeah. say hi to the people. Yep. Hello everybody. Ciao. Ciao.